Welcome to In the Know by Diane Schindler. This is Diane Schindler speaking. I'm the host of In the Know, the podcast show. I'm an author, a presenter, a solo nomad, a travel blogger, and a photographer. So this podcast show includes writing tips, travel tips, and my views of life from savvy and thoughtful to quirky and humorous. I hope you enjoy the show. We received a lot of feedback and comments about last month's episode, Dialogue 101. In that, we used expert excerpts from Mark Twain's Buck Fanshawe's Funeral and John Steinbeck of Mice and Men. This is one of the comments that we received, which is a great pun on our podcast. John clicked off the podcast, then turned to Laura. The girls done a good job of talking about dialogue this time. They're not girls. They're women writers. Hell if they aren't. They're chick writers. You're full of crap, John. You think John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men is a chick book? Well, maybe not Steinbeck. Anyway, they kept my attention. You think I ought to try writing dialogue? You know, there's no way you could write dialogue to make a subtle point. Maybe you're <laughs> right. But those chicks done a good job. This is Bonna's Bite Sized Nuggets Dialogue 102 with Bonna Hayes and me, Diane Schindler. You know, Bonna and I have worked together over the past almost six months now. We've had a great time. Meanwhile, her editing responsibilities have increased, so she needs more time for her clients. Well, that's a bummer, Uh, but I understand. So she won't be doing Bonna's Bite Sized Nuggets anymore. This is the last one. You know, I promise you, I will convince her to come back and speak a few more times on In the Know. Meanwhile, I'll have in the program notes her address, her email address. Write to her if you have any questions about editing. She will be happy to respond. Of course, as I said, I will be continuing in the know. I'll be focusing on writing tips and maybe even travel tips, even though we're in the era of COVID. I'll be posting quirky and fun podcasts. Listen for the October 1st podcast. It's entitled Escape into Small Town Genre Books and Movies. Meanwhile, I'm offering a special treat to authors, bloggers, singers, speakers, anyone who might need a media kit. I've created a media kit list that includes eight items you need for your media kit. I will have a link in the show notes to my media kit that's on my website. If you would like a free copy of the media kit list, please write to me at Diana Broad and put media kit list in the subject line and I'm happy to send you this free media kit list. Now, let's get back to Bana and Dialogue 102. Welcome to Dialogue 102 and Bana's Bite-Sized Nuggets. Start first by telling 
you quickly what we did last month on the topic of Dialogue 101. We discussed the three purposes of dialogue. The purpose of dialogue is to move the story forward, reveal more about the character, and reveal the relationships between and among characters. And we also went into the application of those purposes. That is to say, so last week we talked about dialogue. It was Dialogue 101, and we identified the three purposes of dialogue. And the three purposes, to remind you, are to move the story forward, to, real, to reveal more about character, and to reveal the relationship between and among characters. We also said and touched on the way in which to write dialogue to achieve those purposes. And you do that by word choice, cadence, pet words or phrases, and reactions to struck, excuse me, stress, shock, and excitement. Now today we're going to elaborate on those four ways in which to write dialogue to achieve purpose. And we're going to start with tags because you have a, you have a question about tags, right, Bonna? Right. One of the comments that we got was from um, one of our subscribers who asked us to go into more detail about tags because it's one of her favorite writing topics. So we contacted our friend Marjorie Spears in Vancouver, Washington for more detail about that. And her response was that in general, a conversation that goes blah, 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 he said, blah, 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 she said, and then continues with that same back and forth is deadly. If both the conversation and the lines within it are short, the reader should be able to follow the back and forth without tags. And if the conversation is longer, the speakers can be identified by their actions in order to avoid the constant use of tags. The main thing, is that tag should be as unobtrusive as possible. And so some of the ones that we want to avoid, Diane, are, so we really want to avoid saying, he exclaimed, she opined, he moaned. So That's right. And the purposes of tags, I mean, if you think about the word tag, what tag does when you're writing, it tags the speaker. It's like, okay, I, Let's play tag, you're it. So the tag identifies the speaker. And what, I hearing you, what I'm hearing you say, Bonnie, is that we want to avoid most everything except said, 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 said. Because readers, after a time, don't even see he said or she said. They might see the he or she, but not the said. Or the lead-in with, uh, you can intersperse the dialogue with physical reactions and physical comments and observations. So, for example, here's a little bit of dialogue between two people. They're dancing together. And there's a little bit of action, but there's really only one tag at the beginning, at the, I'm sorry, at the end of the conversation. Julia spoke in his ear. So are you the baby brother? Dan stepped away from her without letting go. I guess so. Bill's always been three years ahead of me, no matter what I do. What do you do? For a living, I mean. I'm a graphic designer. 
I don't put on a suit and tie in the morning. I just roll out of bed and start drawing. Dan had a quick vision of Julia in his bed and how hard it would be to roll out with her there. What do you do? I'm a nurse in the recovery room at Swedish Hospital. What shift? Days. Good. Julia laughed into his shoulder, then pulled back and said, let's sit down. Try it, Diane, reading it with all the tags attached to it that slow it down. I'm a nurse in the recovery room at Swedish Hospital, she said. What shift, he said. Day, she replied. Good, he said. So, you know, you don't need the he said, he should, all that around that because it just slows it down. And certainly not, he replied. I know. And uh, it's a a key notice. It's a key telling sign for an amateur writer. So when you get better at writing, you're also going to get better at the tags. That's right. And the other thing that happened in the first section that you read is that there were outside the dialogue there was there were there was uh exposition so to speak or ways in which to describe the internal internal dialogue that is to say the words that weren't spoken what the characters were thinking or what they were doing in that way you don't have to say she said he said because it's clear with the um surrounding descriptors good so there you have tags marjorie Yes, and thanks for bringing it to our attention. Yeah, we're going to have Marjorie information in the show notes. She's got a wonderful blog that she writes. I'm talking about monomouth. Is that what I'm doing? Yes. I borrowed that term. Maybe it's called plagiarizing. (laughs) I borrowed that term from two writers who are very successful, and they have a podcast called Career Author dot com and they used the word monomouth when they were talking about dialogue one time and it was just really hit home with me and you know mono means single alone one mouth i think we know what that means and so when they describe they said you need to avoid monomouth when you're writing dialogue now what could that mean that means that making sure that the dialogue doesn't sound like the same person that it, that the dialogue fits every character so you have one uh style of dialogue for everyone and that's what we want to avoid it's like jello so you could make lime jello cherry jello and strawberry jello and pour it in one big great big bowl and mix it up and it will come out a brand new Jello, <laughs> one that probably, no one will want to eat. <laughs> I know. When you look at the color of those, it's probably going to be brown. Who's going to eat that? <laughs> so if you put, you know, different flavors of of Jello together in one, I mean, you might. It's not a lot of difference, and so it's it's going to come out ugly and not very impressive. If you make Jello like my mother with lime cheese, lime lime jello that's the lime green jello and you put cream cheese in it in a bowl mix it all up with a little bit of chopped celery you're not going to come up with monomouth jello because (laughs) the cream cheese kind of floats to the top and settles at the top and then you have that crunchy celery i'm i'm not suggesting that you make jello like this i'm just saying my mother made it we ate the damn jello 
We had it for special occasions. Anyway, so just a little humor today. Let me make the analogy here, though. So the thing is, your characters need to be smooth. They need to be flavorful. They need to be crunchy. Each one has to stand out in its own unique way. That's right. Like your mother's jello salad, not like something else. So mono mouth, we, I mean, I really think that that's a good word to remember. Okay. And what's one of the ways that you can avoid that? Well, you can avoid that by having character sketches for your characters. Yeah, the backstory, uh, the character's backstory. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about word choice. That's such an important way to make characters stand out in their own unique way. There are books whose characters stay with you long after you've read the story. You have to ask yourself, why? Why do I go back to that book again and again? Frequently, the characters stand out because the words that are used in those books showcase the personalities of the characters. Different people describe the same scene with uniquely different descriptions. The character is shown through the words they use. You start with a character sketch and include the type of words that they use. Slang, common words, shortened shortened words, idioms, and each character needs to sound different from the other. We're going to deviate just a little bit from, from the written book to illustrate this point of word choice, because most people are so familiar with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's an ode to middle America. That movie features the speech patterns of common folk. From the very first page, where the heavenly angels discuss Clarence and how he hasn't got his wings yet, to George's last line of dialogue, Attaboy, Clarence. The script uses a full range of idioms, slang, contract, and contractions. There's a wonderfully kind taxi driver named Ernie. But Ernie changes after George wishes he had never been born yet. And the way the character changes is illustrated in his word choice. So if you, so Ernie, before he's, before George is granted his wish, as you say, he's kind, sweet, lovable. And now George, you know, re-enters this quote reality where he's never been born. I ain't never seen you before in my life. Well, this house ain't been lived on for 20 years. So he uses ain't, and you know, that's the first time in the story, in the novel, in the short story, in the film that he's used the word ain't. And that's because they're in this hard, bitten, mean-spirited potter's fill. The word choice of ain't uh, reinforces the dichotomy of the hard, bitten, mean-spirited potter's where George never existed in this part of the story. And that's in direct contrast to the lovely homespun Bedford Falls, where George actually did exist. Yeah, so we want to look at dialogue being not only about what your characters say, but how they say it. 
using elements like idioms, slang, contractions can help distinguish characters, add color to the story, and make it more real, giving it a real sense of verisimilitude. Yeah. Nice word. Nice word choice. Going on to cadence. You know, when I think of cadence, I was in the marching band, played French horn in high school. Let me tell you something. When you played French horn, when I was in high school, playing French horn in the marching band with the wool suit on, right alongside the, the cheerleaders with little short skirts. So it wasn't a popular, that's way too much information, but. Oh, but that's I, pretty funny because everybody can identify with the marching I band. I mean, I was a right? cheerleader in the seventh grade, but this was high school. Junior yeah. high and high school. But, in, you know, in the marching band, you. And that you would march to that cadence. So when you think of cadence, you're thinking about what's the rhythm of the dialogue? What's the rhythm? And what's the, what's the speed, right? What's the speed? It sounds like, like if I were watching that movie Drumline, I'd be, it'd be right? Yeah, really good Cadence changes the speed at which the scene is read, and it also allows the writer to share with the reader the character's feelings. We have a great scene to share with you that illustrates Cadence, and it's from a a paranormal book by Cressley Cole called The Kiss of a Demon King. Wolfie, is it? And what do you know about my turning? I asked around when I figured out I was your mate. He stood crossing to her. Well, let's hear it. Basically, you'll lose your mind, turning animalistic, hunting me down until you claim me repeatedly, biting my neck and marking me as your possession. Nothing will stop you. No cage can hold you. Did I miss anything? I, Lucia. His gaze raked over her, and his voice deepened. The fact that you're going to like it. Hmm. So let's look at that dialogue. He says, I, Lucia. Well, there's word choice, and it does also tell, we already know that they're from um, Ireland or Scotland or England. So it's I, Lucia. Different name, different word choice. And let's go back to what Lucia says. Basically, you'll lose your mind, turning animalistic, hunting me down. Into... So there's a string of actions. And it's go, going, right? And the other Suddenly. part, now, if we go to the, front, the second um, line of the first dialogue that I read, when Lucia's talking and she says, Wolfie, is it? And what do you know about my turning? I asked around when I figured out I was your mate. So in the written word, you don't see it, but there's an ellipsis. There's three dots. So you know there's a break between I was your mate. 
And so that's another example of uh, cadence. So there was a pause and that means something. The other thing and we should talk about here is I, I think the very last thing that, that Wolfie says when he says, I, Lucia, then there's a descriptor. There's the dialogue, I, Lucia. Then there's the descriptor, his gaze raked over her and his voice deepened. The fact that you're going to like it. So what I wanted to say about that as the writer, you can make a pause in between I, Lucia, and his second thought by having a descriptor. And you know how, so, so for me, it's been difficult sometimes to figure out how to create a pause. And so I'm just saying to you, we have that dialogue, the way in which to create a pause sometimes is have a descriptor between the in the area that you want to pause. So you don't have to describe a pause, but rather the reader senses a pause. Exactly. And it changes the cadence, the rhythm, the rhythm. of the speech between the two characters. And because you've added the descriptor, you've also added a insight into his character. His voice deepens. Mm -hmm. about pet words pet words a way to identify a unique character is by the words that they choose to use or a way to identify that it's a different character in the story is by having that character choose certain words to use. a good example is from twice in a blue moon by laura drake and the character says what do you mean nothing you're looking at me like I'm a mouse turd on toast. You're looking at me like I'm a mouse turd on toast. Well, it's my favorite dialogue that we've talked about so far. You have to use that. You can't let me say that. You know, I can't use it because it's plagiarism. But, you know, so who's going to, I mean, talk about a pet. I'm sure this fellow who spoke, that probably is one of his pet phrases. It's certainly a different kind of phrase. Most characters aren't going to use those words. And so there's a perfect example of a character demonstrating not only different word choice, but reflection of how he thinks and how, yeah. he, how, behave, how he behaves with this character that he's speaking to. What's that funny look on your face? Oh, I'm just laughing at the mouse turd on toast. I, I would, I, there were characters that I used to write. No, I didn't write about them, but now I think I'm going to have to write about them. <laughs> yes, I think you should. They would talk that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're looking at me like I'm a mouse turd on toast. I know, oh my gosh. You know, talk about vivid. Talk about showing rather than telling. That yes. certainly shows us you have a visceral response to it. I do. I'm thinking, oh, and I see those little dots on the toast, the mouse turds, they're teeny light. Never mind. Okay. Never mind. Moving right along. Okay. So moving right along. We have to talk about one more thing that's really important. And that is how, how different characters' reaction to stress and shock and excitement can distinguish between them and also their relationship. I have pulled again from Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. You may remember Shawshank Redemption. It's, the, it's a novella. 
novella is called Different Seasons, but I'm sure you've seen the movie. And in the movie, the main character is Andy. He's been falsely accused of killing his wife. That's he's right. He's a banker. He's smart. And he's been uh, falsely accused. And so this scene I, I pulled out from page 38 in the novella. Let me set it up for you. Here we have a scene where Andy is confronted by three guards at the Shawshank prison. His name, the one that we're really going to pay attention to, is named Hadley. So these three guards are just about ready. There's been a, conf been a conflicting discussion because Hadley has to pay money to the IRS and he doesn't want to pay money to the IRS. And Andy says, well, I can tell you how you can uh, avoid that. So there's this sort of, sort of a conversation that ensues, but where we enter is that the three guards are about ready to throw Andy over the side of the railing, and suddenly one of the characters pulls a gun on Andy, and they keep moving him like they're going to put him over the side, and Andy says to Hadley, if you've got your thumb on your wife, Mr. Hadley, there's no reason why you shouldn't have every cent of that money. You can give it to her. Final score, Mr. Byron Hadley, 35,000, Uncle Sam, zip. Well, now those three characters, you know, they're still pushing him, getting ready to push Andy over the side. And Hadley says, hold on a second. What do you mean, boy? I mean, if you've got your thumb on your wife, you can give it to her. You can give that money to her. You better start making some sense, boy, or you're going over. The IRS allows you a one-time only gift to your spouse, Andy said, and it's good up to $60,000. So now Hadley says, nah, that ain't right. He said, tax-free? Andy says, tax-free. The IRS can't touch one cent. How would you know a thing like that? And the other guard says, he used to be a banker, Byron. Suppose he might. He's, and, then, and then Hadley says, shut your head trout. So I hope what you're getting out of that is imagine the scene. Andy is getting ready. They're getting ready to throw him over the side. One of the guards has a, ga a gun pointed at him. And Andy has these lovely long sentences that seem to be calm. You know, when I read it, there are no italicized words. There's no exclamation points. There's no capitalized words in Andy's dialogue. And then yet the other characters, the guards, they seem to be, first of all, they're threatening, but they also seem to be shocked mm -hmm. at what Andy is saying. So he, you learn about Andy's character. He is not or he chooses not to demonstrate that he's nervous about being thrown over the side or with a gun facing him. So we learn a lot about the character. There's clear difference between how Andy responds to what should be shock and awe and how the guards respond to yes. knowing this great information that he can give money to his wife and not any to the IRS. And they don't believe him. And they're saying that, shut your mouth, Trout. So he says, shut your mouth, Trout. I mean, that's a good threatening sentence, good choice of words. And, and um, there it demonstrates, as we said, the difference, how characters respond in their dialogue to shock, awe, threat. So have we provided all the examples for today? I think we have. I think we've touched on just about everything that everybody might want to hear in one shot. We talked about word choice, yeah. Yeah. cadence, and 
using dialogue to show stress, excitement, and shock. And pet words, pet words and phrases. We hope we, we hoped up from some of that. Now you probably, maybe you knew all this the whole time, but I hope that our descriptors help you see it more clearly, not only as readers, but as, as you write your novel. Do you have some bite-sized nuggets for us, Bonna? I do. I think that I would suggest to folks, listen to the conversations around you and try writing your dialogue that way. The way dialogue is often written is not illustrative of the real kind conversations that go on around us. Use slang, idioms, and contractions to make your dialogue more realistic. Read screenplays. There's many of them that are fun to read, and they're known for brilliant dialogue. Last but not least, remember the lime jello. Avoid monomouth. <laughs> <laughs> make your characters unique. Let me tell you what's on my nightstand. I have Laura Kay, New York Times bestseller, Hard As It Gets. It's a romance novel, and I'm reading this, and it's really chock full of good stuff. I'll have a link in the show notes so that you can access this novel. And what's on your nightstand? It's Anne Lamott, um, Bird by Bird. It's her old, it's old, but a good book. Um, it's a guide to uh, for writers. She's one of my favorite writers. Right. And we'll have a link to the program notes to that book. Okay, well, good. We covered, this was Dialogue 102. This is our last bonus bite-sized nugget. We, did, we thought we had kind of exhausted what we wanted to talk about right now uh, mm -hmm. in terms of writing. Diane is coming out with a new book, which is going to be very exciting. And we want you to remember to listen to Diane Abroad. And in November... In November, we're going to be featuring J.J. Clark. She's going to be coming on and talk about writing her two books. And by then, the third one should be released with a target date of October 15th. So that's good. It's been wonderful, Bono. Oh, I've had Diane. so much fun with you. I've learned a lot from you. I know you have a lot on your plate and you have a lot of clients and you're selling your house. And, and um, so it's a good time to kind of go on hiatus. And as you said, I'm finishing this. I'm, my book, Claim Denied, is um, off to beta readers. So scary, scary. So I should be getting that information back in a week and a half and then I'll have to bear down again and start making changes. Uh, meanwhile, I'm developing a marketing plan by updating my website and Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And I've hired someone to do a book cover. So I should have that in a, a little bit too. So I'm excited. That's very exciting. Just yeah. putting that book in the hands of the beta readers is yeah. huge. I know. Going and you know forward the, um, let me tell you this, if I may. The blurb that is going on the back cover for Claim Denied. Feisty and outspoken Anita Evelyn Hart and her fiancé, the charming and wealthy activist Andre Orlov Stefan, left Minnesota to launch a new life abroad. Their plan, he'd work for the State Department and she'd teach English. Together, They'd make a difference in people's lives throughout the world, one country at a time, starting in Pristina, Kosovo. Within days, 
of their arrival in Pristina, her world crashed. Anita learned someone killed Andy, a single gunshot to the back of the head. She refused to believe it until an ominous stranger banged on her door, and she learned undeniable facts. Andy was dead, and she was prey. Anita knew one person in all of Kosovo, Andy's friend, Gray Valentin. She loathed the rotund and awkward know-it-all. He was her only hope of entangling this traumatic murder mystery. Why would anyone want to kill her beloved Andy? How was it that she became the hunted one? Can she decode the clues in time? And finally, will she survive? Great. And I will add that you didn't you used to um, you spent a lot of time in Kosovo. Yes, so I lived in Kosovo. For, I was there fifteen months working for the American University of Kosovo. I was a writing consultant for the executive team of that university, and I also taught writing to native Albanian speakers who spoke English, but they had trouble writing English. And so, really, that was the inspiration for this thriller novel. Thank, Thank you so you. much. And uh, we're going to keep up. I appreciate the work that you've done for Bana's Bite Size Nuggets. And we will talk again. All right. Thanks, Diane. Thank you so much for listening to In the Know. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing and sharing it with your family and friends. You can like this episode, leave a comment, and even add a rating. Your support is very important to the success of In the Know. Thank you for listening and see you next time.